Hello and welcome back to the Event Lab podcast, your window into the events conversation. Coming up, we've got the News Digest. With the GDPR deadline looming, how does the team feel it's affected the industry? Are celebrity chefs moving into the catering game? As we end Mental Health Week, is the events industry finally stepping up to address the issue? And finally, the Royal Wedding, a shiny example of all UK events can be. Now, Charlotte was away this week, so Ed and Sam are joined by Julian Sape, the Director of Event and Party Caterers, Zaffirano. After the News Digest, we are bringing you a panel discussion hosted at an event we held back in April, moderated by C and IT editor Callum Diletto, titled, What are the key attributes clients look for in a venue in 2018 and beyond? But before that, here's the News Digest. Morning. And hello, hello, Julian. Good morning. Thank you very much for stepping in. Pleasure. We've got uh, some interesting food, food news this week, so even more delighted to have you here. Thank you. Um, but I think it's 10 days to go before GDPR hits. I think uh, it's fair to say that people have spoken a lot about GDPR, um, but we're almost there. Is the industry ready? Oh, I think the industry's tired. Um, I think every trade body and association has milked GDPR. I think every tech company seems to have, um, you know, enjoyed earning a little bit of a crust from GDPR. And I think now let's just get it over and done with. And can we all please stop panicking about it? Because it's not as dramatic as people are sharing. That seems to be... The latest consensus seems to be exactly exactly that. Is that, is that your feeling, Julian? I think it'll be, in, it'll be interesting to wake up on May the 26th and see um, what e-marketing looks like. I think the rumour is that databases in general will be culled. But, you know, we're expecting many of our, our loyal customers not to recommission themselves online simply because our email might have ended up in their spam box. A lot, a lot of the emails I'm receiving seem to be going to spam. So I think technically it's a, it's a little bit of a minefield, but I think culturally also it'll be, it'll be interesting to see now that our databases are substantially smaller, which I think is a good thing, um, how we now engage with our audience going forwards. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of doom and gloom, but is this ultimately, is this a, is this a good thing for the industry, a good thing for the world? Yes, um, all my, all Sequoia's venue clients have seen this as a real positive opportunity um, to actually work with those clients and design content for the people that want to receive it. So yeah, I think it's a very positive thing. I think having a qualified audience is a good thing. And it, from our point of view, it's, it's a great way to, to tidy up our database and, and work with the people who really want to hear from us. Um, but I also think it depends on your business and how reliant you are on that form of communication. We are less so, but I imagine higher spaces, digital marketers, is, is probably a very important time. Yeah, I mean, higher spaces built up a, a big database, but actually only a relatively small amount of our business comes from, from email marketing. So I think I, I, I generally concur with, with, with what Sam was saying about how this is a good thing, good thing for the world. We'll lose a few people from our database, but doesn't seem like the end of the world for us. I'd like to make a point that it isn't just about digital marketing. Yeah. I think that people are really focused on what they're sending and they're updating their newsletter preferences, which is a little bit frustrating because actually if you look at the ICO guidelines, this is not to give companies like yours, companies like Hirespace 
or my company a hard time. This is about the personal data that you hold. So it's actually about if you've got a file and you don't lock your files up and we're back in the good old days and you leave a file with one of your uh, members of staff's personal data on your table, you walk out. So somebody else can come and steal that and take on their identity. That is what GDPR is about. So it's about raising awareness, managing the information that you hold, looking after and managing your privacy information. So letting people and communicating with people how you use their data, protecting children. This is about the stuff that's happening online that's completely and utterly dangerous. So we're all having this stress in the event industry about whether someone's going to respond to our mailing list, which you rightly say, Julian, isn't the way we should be communicating with our customers perhaps anyway. So I think we we need to take a little bit of a chill pill as a sector, realise that it's actually a really good thing from a marketing point of view, as well as a data, personal privacy, and to protect us all as individuals. Makes sense. So, so, so nothing to be too worried about, and broadly a good thing for, for everyone overall. Yes. And a lot less unsolicited mail on May the 26th. Hooray. Which everyone will be happy about. I wanted to pick up quickly, especially brilliant having you here, Julian, for this, uh, on something that I saw in Big Hospitality that I thought was interesting. Title was, why are so many celebrity, I think it was celebrity or high profile chefs launching catering businesses? Why do you think that is? Um, I, I don't think it's news. I think the relationship between name chefs, restaurateurs and outside catering has been going on for a while. I think there are a few reasons why it still continues to have value in the market. I think one could be an economic opportunity. The cost of real estate for restaurateurs is very high, higher than it ever has been. So unless you're a destination restaurant and not paying very much for your premises, the chances are that you have big overheads and outside catering is an, is another source of revenue. Mm-hmm. So I think that it, it's... there's. There's, there's an opportunity, a revenue, a new revenue opportunity. I also think that in this experience economy, the the choices of the event buying audience are now much more focused around what happens on the high street. Mm. So if there's an exciting restaurant or an exciting chef on the high street in the news, people are going to gravitate towards that as an opportunity to have an event. So I think restaurants and chefs are capitalizing on that opportunity. So it's about, it's about the, the lifestyle buying trends of event organizers and party hosts. Yeah, and do, do traditional caterers, you know, do they need to adapt? Is it, is, uh, is it a different environment for them? I don't think we need to adapt, but I think we have to understand why, why the trend is a trend. I think people, we're in a very brand-centric society and people love buying into concepts. They love buying into a food idea, a... Uh, an acclaimed chef who's got his own particular style. So we, we have to appreciate that the people buying events and buying parties love the idea of a concept. And as party caterers, we, we are conceptual. We, we're comedians. We reinvent ourselves every day. But we also have to take note of the fact that our competition is the high streets and chefs who have higher profile in, in terms of what they individually do. Are they guaranteed to succeed because of their because of their profile? That's a good question. Not necessarily, because I think um, whilst there's a, a revenue opportunity and the demand, the challenges of outside catering, uh, as I know, uh, are considerable. The, there's sort of menu development. There's um, all the operational considerations. 
there's the logistical challenges and so it's it's not easy and there are many uh, well-known chefs who started outside catering businesses who failed uh, I, I think I think there's a there's room in the market for party caterers and restaurants to collaborate on projects which is which is what we've done which is a is a great synergy of um, potential and demand I think to pick up on that that's what Tom Kerridge has done by teaming up with brand events yeah, I think Tom so, Kerridge was the latest one wasn't yeah he? Um, his business which brilliant because he is from the West Country called Lush Events, um, but teaming up with an established organisation in our industry, such as Brand Events, I think is a smart way of doing it, realising that it isn't just as simple as coming out of a restaurant into this very, very challenging and difficult space. Gary Rhodes, I think, was one of the first ones, wasn't he? Sodexo, contract caterer. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, lots of, of name chefs like Gary Rhodes... They, they've, they've, they've had affiliations with contract caterers and there, there, there are many layers to these business relationships and, and some have succeeded and some haven't. And, but, but certainly, the, you know, chefs continue to be the rock stars of the food industry. And so, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a great marketing tool for uh, a contract caterer or an outside caterer to be affiliated with a chef. But I have to say, it doesn't always work. It makes very good press, which is what we're talking about. But what is the shelf life of, of that relationship? And, and how long do these businesses last? What trend do you think will continue? Definitely, because I think the high street rules and whatever, whatever's going on on the high street, has, there's a big demand for it. And your average punter that eats in a good restaurant, who then has a party, wants to know if that restaurant can produce a party for them. Or look out for look out for a few more of those. I saw something in the new. I think it was I think conference news. I saw um, it's GLH, big London hotel group now talking about raising their agency commission to ten percent. So after all this stuff with Hilton and Marriott, you now have a big hotel group saying completely the opposite thing. Actually, we're going to raise our commission. What is going on? I think first of all that their PR director deserves a promotion. Probably or does. a bonus, I think, picking up on, you know, we discussed this a couple of news digests ago. Um, I think they are all nice brands within that group, Amber, Groman and Thistle. But they're certainly not brands that are punching above their weight in our sector in terms of meetings and events. I think they're very much a mid-tier brand. So I, th- so I think from a brand point of view, I think this is a really good thing. I think for London, you know, let's, uh, as this is our home city... I think it's a, a great thing, but I think it is just a big, big publicity stunt. But good luck to them. So Hilton and Marriott aren't, aren't running scared at this stage. Although I, maybe, maybe Marriott should be after what happened the other. Do you see the thing with the Southampton Football Club recently? Yeah. You see that? I think getting a one star on TripAdvisor from Mark Hughes, um, the Southampton Football Club manager, for dumping his team probably is causing them more brand <laughs> damage than an amber hotel raising their commission by two percent so what did they swansea wasn't it what did they do they they cancelled the whole they cancelled the whole t- the whole booking so that the southampton football club who were playing swansea city the next day had to travel all the way from um cardiff but a great plug for vale resorts they did a really good job looking after the southampton football team so good that they still beat swansea they didn't need marriott good news bad news <laughs> for marriott Commission policy challenged and what sounds like... We sound like we're bashing Marriott. We, we like Marriott as well. No, we love Marriott. <laughs> um, 
Okay, I, I, I think we should, it's, it's Mental Health Week. Uh, I think we should, um, we should nod that and, and, and just ask the question. I mean, we, we've spoken a lot about mental health uh, on, the, on the podcast and, and elsewhere through Event Lab. Um, where are we at? Is the, have we come far enough in, as, as an industry? I don't think so at all. I, I think I'd like everyone to generally, not just in the events industry, I'd like everyone to start talking about good mental health. Mental health is, is stigmatized. It becomes an issue when things go wrong. And what can we do as an industry and a society as general to, to, to celebrate good mental health in the same way that we talk about physical well-being and, and, you know, the nutritional value of food and how it sustains us physically? What, what are the, the key factors that are going to sustain us mentally? And that, that's, a, that's a grassroots conversation. Yeah. Sam, you told me you've been eating fish solidly, exclusively, <laughs> exclusively was it, for the last three weeks? That wasn't meant to be shared, Ed. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I think food is, is really important. Um, and I think, I think at the moment, uh, we've, you know, we've got uh, the campaign for Eventwell uh, running in September again. We're trying at the moment, from an Eventwell perspective, to garner more information from the industry in terms of what resources are needed Great, and I have to give a big shout out to IMEX this week, who have got uh, several sessions around mental health and well-being. Um, but I do feel yet again, it's one of those things that the industries just enjoy talking about, but actually we still need to take some action and some steps towards it. And having Julian here and having the discussion offline around how important food is, not just for your physical well-being, which people, especially venues, talk about, we really need to sort of understand that putting the right food, and yes, including my pescatarian changes, um, really do affect your mental health and well-being. And there's other things around that as well as, as food. But yeah, an important thing that we need to keep talking about. Where, for Eventwell, where do if people want to find out more about what Eventwell do? Where should they start? Um, certainly on the website, eventwell.org. Um, there's a lot of useful information that's come out in line with Mental Health Awareness Week um, on social media, especially Twitter. Um, but go straight to the website, some great resources on there, and uh, you can pledge and find out stuff that you're doing. I saw something today about Emirates Old Trafford, who are launching um, a new resource for their um, event planners using their space, and I think that's a great initiative. Great. We are... Running low on time, I, I hear there's a big event coming up in, in Windsor this week. Is this a showcase of the UK events industry best practice? I don't know. We haven't heard very much about it other than an article I read in the Daily Mail about the, this trendy format that Meghan and Harry opted for, bowl food. <laughs> Who would have guessed? So instead of the, the formal large sit-down dinner, the, the post-wedding party is a bowl food party, mini suppers served in bowls, and the, the Daily Mail was celebrating this, this powerful new trend, which of course isn't a new trend, but it was interesting to see the sort of key component of our industry uh, reflected on in the Daily Mail. So everyone's just having bowl food? There's, it's a bowl food party, but I think then the, there's a hand-picked audience of 200 that then go on for a formal dinner where no doubt they are eating uh, terrine and foie gras, etc. I think it's interesting that this, um, certainly I was watching the one show last night and there, you know, the hype's already started as we know. And one of the US TV channels was saying that it's actually its largest outside broadcast that they have done 
certainly in their in their history. So, you know, we've got real opportunity from a Britain, um, you know, events of great point of view to really showcase all that is good and great about this country. So sort of looking at a little bit of a bigger picture. Um, and I really hope we take that opportunity when we've got this huge international audience. I mean, they have people from Australia, from Portugal, they're bringing their chief anchorman over for the wedding. So we really do have an opportunity to showcase what's best and what is truly great about Britain. I just still haven't found my invitation yet, Ed. Have you got yours? You haven't got yours yet? No, maybe I could be your plus one. You can be my plus one. <laughs> well, it's only a good, good job of, uh, of the pre-event marketing. I don't think there's a single person in the world almost isn't talking about a royal wedding, but there you go. Um, we are out of time. Sam, thank you as ever. Thanks, Ed. Julian, thank you very much for stepping in. I hope we see you again. My pleasure. Can't wait. It's over to our panel discussion now as they explore the many problems that clients and agencies face when working with venues, as well as what makes a successful relationship and a fruitful event planning experience. This was hosted as part of our Event Lab series. These events feature educational content through discussion, workshops and talks, and attendees enjoy the hospitality of a top London venue whilst networking with peers and walk away with the practical skills and knowledge curated for their position. Hello everyone, I'm Callum Delieto, the <laughs> editor of CNIT magazine. Um, so I'll be moderating the panel discussion today. We've got four great speakers with us and I'm just going to ask you... Sorry, just slowly, <laughs> <laughs> slowly drifting over there. Um, yeah, I'll just ask you to briefly introduce yourselves and kind of your involvement with what you do and anything like that. So. Charlotte Gentry, um, founder and CEO of Pure Events. We've been going for about 15 years. Um, we produce um, international, global conference and incentives. I'm Kate Kelly from Fisher Productions. So we are a full-service production agency. I'm one of the account directors there. We do about 450 events a year, and we do venue finding, but also sit on a number of lists as an approved supplier also. Hi, I'm Natalie Davies. I'm from ITV Experiences. So uh, across the business, we run around 150 events, anything from sort of dinner parties to large-scale productions, um, shows, and things like that, very ITV. Um, so we book directly with venues, but we also use event-finding agencies as well for a lot of our events. And I'm Victoria Monks. I work for Sense, which is a charity. So I've been working in the charity sector for the last five years doing fundraising events. So the aim of today is really to find out what it is behind these individuals' minds that makes them consider a, des uh, a venue and the kind of the decision-making process behind that, the, the bugbears and also the, the things that they really enjoy. So I guess just to start off, what's kind of a, a bugbear? Like what, what really winds you up about a venue? Um, don't, don't feel too hurt by these, these <laughs> sentiments. But the idea, you know, this is a learning process, it's a learning process. So yeah, if we just start with you, because I keep... Touching your chair. <laughs> um, so for me, um, one of the things that's frustrating is when the, if you know you're dealing with a sales team, and then when you come to then talk to the ops team, some of the things that you might have agreed aren't necessarily what can happen when it comes to the event. Um, so you might have gone further with a venue that actually, when it comes to putting it together, you can't quite achieve what you had envisioned. Um, so that's a bit of a bugbear that sometimes the communication between the teams isn't always 
Great. <laughs> I think I uh, completely agree. That transition from salesperson to operationally on the day sometimes is a bit jarred and, and could be smoother um, in certain situations. Um, I think for, for us personally, I think it's really important that we get full transparency over costs and inclusions and exclusions and that there are no like nasty surprises. Um, once we've sold it into our stakeholders, I think it's important that you know we know everything and the full story and there aren't any surprises. Yeah, I think similarly for us as a production agency, obviously we're bringing in um, a lot of equipment often, we're building bespoke items, so knowing exactly what you can and can't do within that space from the offset is obviously key for us. Um, when we're venue finding for our clients, we often have to advise in terms of what you can and can't do, so it's really embarrassing for us sometimes further down the line if you've kind of sold in a particular build or set design and then suddenly further down the line you can't do that. Um, and also with additional costs. So for us, often we're looking after the whole budget for the client. So if we then have to sneak in an additional cost at the end, we need to be able to back that up. So transparency is key from us right from the start. I think really um, the biggest issue is that when you go on site visits is that you have the salesperson who takes you on the site inspection and actually you need, the, you need the salesperson there and you need the ops person there because you need to understand from the very beginning exactly what's possible and what's not um, and often you are in a scenario where somebody's desperately trying to sell you the space but actually it just doesn't work for various reasons and you're not being given 100% the true picture of actually what's possible. So in actual fact, you need both sides of the equation there from the, very, from the offset, really. Um, otherwise, you just encounter larger problems down the road and we found ourselves in an embarrassing situation where <clears throat> the venue of misguided us over information and actually even some of that information has been misguided even on brochures. Um, when we've actually been sent the information electronically, it's actually not been correct. Um, where we've then had to go back to our clients and say, really sorry, but actually we've just been informed of X, Y, and Z, and that puts us in a terribly difficult position because we then have to navigate our way out of that, um, and we shouldn't really have to in the first instance. It sounds like the common thread really is, is communication and then also having that relationship where it's less transactional and more sort of consultative from the very beginning. But what can be done to maybe improve that? Because it sounds like that's a common issue that's obviously occurring a lot. And how can that be improved? How can that be developed? How can the people in the audience think, oh, that's, that's what I need to do to, uh, to, to benefit more? Is there... I think education, actually, in terms of, uh, and it does boil back down to communication, but actually generic education throughout the entire team. If there's a, um, you know, I don't... We don't necessarily know what kind of internal meetings happen within venues to actually educate the people that are um, selling the space as well as actually really understanding the delivery aspects. And so um, often you find that the person that you're talking to on the end of the phone from the op side doesn't really 100% know the ins and outs of where the plug sockets are in the room, how that particular set design is actually going to work. Um, and therefore, we find, out, we find that we might be in fact, needing to educate the venue with certain scenarios that we feel that we shouldn't really have to because the venue should already understand absolutely categorically inside and out exactly how that room will work. What about with the new venues? So obviously there's, there's a big <coughs> hunger and a big appetite for, for these you know, new venues that you've never been to before and things like that. So there, there's naturally going to be some sort of teething problems where maybe they aren't as experienced um, at having every kind of event in the space. 
is there is there a level of sort of acceptance like okay fair enough or, or do you think that there should still be a, a very very thorough level of education way before they even go live i think it's fine if they say they don't know and then you can actually bring in, that, yeah, I think, I, I think it's much better if they say, we're not totally sure how that's going to work or, you know, we don't really know how that's going to look. We haven't done it before. And then we can bring in, so for instance, we're a production agency, so we would probably go along with our client and we would ask questions and see whether or not we could do that there and then with potentially their whole team or whoever it is who'd be overseeing that on the event. Um, I think it's more being led down the garden path and kind of finding out later down the line that what you've been promised isn't achievable. Comes back to that transparency. Yeah. So it's, it's instead of trying to hoodwink and, and trying to kind of trick you into saying, yes, 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 we'll go with you. It's, it's just saying right from the start, okay, we don't know this, uh, we can do this, this is our limitation, um, and then going from there. Again, I'm, I'm assuming that's, that's the same with costs, because I think you mentioned earlier about sometimes there being hidden costs later down the line when you're already way committed. You know, has there been a scenario or multiple scenarios? Is this a common occurrence that this happens? So something that always crops up is something as crazy as Wi-Fi, where you find out that, um, and we do a lot of um, international conferencing, so um, we'll find out that you know the, the, the venue wants to charge a per head cost over the course of three days per delegate for Wi-Fi, which quite frankly should now 100% be included in the cost of what you're paying for. Um, and these things should be absolutely um, uh, highlighted from the offset rather than then coming up against something like that, which if you're dealing with 600 people for a conference in Rome or something, it's a significant cost over a three-day period of time. It can equate to thousands of pounds, which you know, the client hasn't um, accounted for. And again, it's just, it, 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 puts, it puts everybody in a bit of a difficult situation. Mm. I had a, a similar experience with... Cleaning, actually. Cleaning wasn't included. Um, we had a, a three-day build. It was a, a dry hire space, so there's you know, some differences with dry hire spaces, but um, it just wasn't accounted for and wasn't flagged. And suddenly, after you know, two days' worth of men going in and out, like women going in and out, um, you needed to clean the toilets. And you know, that was something that we were expected to um, organise and then pay for as well. So that was a hidden cost that we... It was really strange, wasn't it? No. What about yourself? Well, yeah, so for me, working in the charity sector, um, when we come across hidden costs, it makes a big difference because that's money that we're then having to spend on the event that isn't going towards the people that we're supposed to be raising money to help. Um, so, yeah, the transparency is really important for us. And then on the agency side, you've, you've also then got a client to to manage at the same time so so it's it's like another degree of of communication and, and, and issues things like that so so it'd be interesting to hear from the corporate side and the agency side on 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 this but how do you if if the venue's been completely transparent but say things like with commissions and other costs and things like that how do you then continue that transparency all through that relationship so that there isn't any issues throughout that entire line of communication so I guess from your side, when you are working with third parties, how does what's your preference? So we are the budget holders for our projects and we have a responsibility to make sure that the budget that we've been given by our stakeholders, internal stakeholders, um, doesn't increase or doesn't go over. If it does, we then have to justify that cost. 
So if we get given a, a hidden cost or you know an increase in the budget that we then can't, ex we do have to explain it to the stakeholder or ask for more money, um, which then you know there never is. <laughs> so uh, it puts us in a really really tricky situation. So it's really really key to have that communication. Oh. <laughs> you're both chomping at the bit it's okay it's okay we'll get to it um i mean obviously you've touched on um the most recent issue about commission structures um which um are changing with regards to the likes of Marriott and hilton having reduced their their commissions and what it's done um is um is it's 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 meant that within the industry agencies are having to relook at remodeling their their structure basically and being a lot more transparent which is something that we absolutely do anyway so we have a time-based model and our time is um logged on time-based software so we charge an, a fee for the services that we deliver um so it's completely transparent everything that we do is completely broken down so we don't have any of these issues of um hiding how much commission we're making from venues because actually we're completely open to disclosing it um, to our clients who are actually able then to reutilize that commission against future services actually that we are um, able to offer them. So we've looked at remodeling that um, with that with this particular new um, concern and issue in the forefront of, of people's minds. So I think the whole venue finding model is, is absolutely having to change now um, because you know clients clients don't know how much commission. Um, their agencies are, are, are taking um, and you know they could be doing two hours work and gaining £12,000 worth of commission for that so you know I think there's a big call in the industry um, client side to, um, to to make that information readily available yeah we, we work in various different ways to kind of flex towards our clients so some clients um, we actually work on a kind of open book basis um, and we'll be completely transparent with our costs. Obviously, we offer a service and we also do bespoke build and kit, so those things cost, so they can obviously see what those items are and everything's line-itemed in terms of how we charge. So um, something that we're also looking at doing is charging for our time more openly. So um, we are now reducing our actual physical service costs and actually charging more for our time because what we've realised is that's the most valuable part of our business. Um, but obviously, when it comes to the venue and those costs, Again, we don't mark those up, we just put those in. So it means that when there are those additional costs, we don't have any slush fund to kind of support that. Um, we actually had a situation a couple of years ago on an event where it wasn't in the contract and it wasn't flagged that we had to do an asbestos survey at the venue, which is completely unheard of. You wouldn't <laughs> expect to walk into a venue and check if there's asbestos in the roof. Um, so that was an additional cost, which in the end we had to kind of half with the client. Um, so again, again, transparency is really key, but we will obviously try and be as transparent with our clients on the other end. And what do you think the future is for the, 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 the new commissions? Do you think it's, I mean, obviously going from 10% to 7% was, was a big thing for Marriott, then Hilton jumped on board, and it seems like the bigger hotel chains will probably do that. But do you think across the entire industry, commissions will just eventually disappear and, and it, there just won't be any commissions at all, or it will just maybe get lower? or? How do you see that going forward? Because obviously you were talking about changing your models and do you think that that's the future now and that commissions will eventually just... I think, I think the heavy reliability on the commission-only model, I mean, essentially most venue-finding agencies are providing a free service. I mean, there is no such thing as a free lunch, right? So, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, this service is probably no longer going to be free. I mean, that's the bottom line. Um, it will be um, a nominal fee charge service based on time 
of actually doing the research and coming up with the, with the right solutions to suit that client brief, um, which means everybody knows exactly 100% where they are. It's probably become more of a retainer-based model um, with um, commissions that are being earned being... Um, being, you know, being added to that pot of money that the client's paying and then them being able to utilise those commissions. So I don't think commissions are going to completely vanish because I think that would be um, quite unusual or take quite a long time for that model to completely change. However, I don't think venue finding agencies are going to be able to survive on the commission-based model alone um, and will be forced to be a lot more transparent with actually where their revenues are coming from. And just... And I guess with you, because you said you work with venue finding partners uh, in, in, in this instance. I personally feel that in a way it's a good thing because it means that the the decisions will be less maybe biased. You know, they won't be going, okay, well, we suggest that ITV puts puts your event here because we're going to get paid the most. Mm. And actually that it might become back to that consultative aspect where they say okay so your event is trying to achieve this this and this well this venue actually ticks all of those boxes regardless of how much money i'm getting from it so do you think that there might be more, a more positive change in terms of the kind of venue choices and, and things yeah there could be i think that, that definitely makes sense um i think it will affect our bottom line regardless um so that will be the main effect on us sort of as the client um because, yeah, there's no such thing as a free service, so they need to get the money from somewhere. So that's probably the impact on us. I think also um, agencies are going to be forced to actually increase their service offering um, and actually do a lot more contracting. I mean, a lot of what we do now is contract negotiation. So, and this is one of the other bugbears that I would personally like to put forward is lack of flexibility um, with attrition terms, deposit terms, um, and having the ability to actually amend those um, uh, based on a particular situation. I mean, we actually managed to pick up a very sizable piece of business because they'd been trying to, um, a very large corporation had been trying to um, uh, inflict their terms onto a particular venue that simply wouldn't budge. And as a result, they couldn't actually hold their event there because the, uh, the venue wouldn't alter their terms to suit the terms of this big corporation. So it was to our, our gain, because we ended up by taking the event to the Guild Hall, who were very flexible in their approach. Um, and um, so I think flexibility and being able to negotiate further to make sure that there's no wastage in terms of bedrooms, that there's a greater level of flexibility on attrition terms, deposit terms, um, and all these different elements that need to be included in those contracts is definitely something that most venue finding agencies will have to include as part of the service offering moving forwards. And the rest of you had any problems with those kind of flexibilities? I think contracting is always tricky. I, I've worked on the venue side and been that venue person saying, yeah. no, T's and C's are T's and C's, not going to change. So I kind of see both sides and often it's not necessarily the terms, the terms aren't set necessarily by those teams, they're set by people further up the ranks and I think it is tricky for them to be able to flex. However, that said, in my experiences, we did always try and, and kind of move the boundaries where possible. So, you know, things like payment terms, maybe you could be a little bit more flexible and put a plan together based on the timings that that client is working to or their kind of cash flow, providing you're going to get the money at the end of the day. Um, so I think, you know, we do it in our business, we do contract on behalf of our clients and we see the inflexibility there too. But I think it's, again, communication, being able to actually discuss the objectives of the client and what they need to achieve and seeing if you can meet halfway. There are, there are situations where, um, on occasion, we find that we have 
a client, we have one particular client that does a particular event um, in the same location year after year after year um, because that particular location is best suited for this particular event. Um, and if you're going to take a piece of business back to the same location over a course of two to three years, being able to do a deal of some, of some kind where actually there's an incentive to stay in that location, whether it's a 5% discount, whether it's fixed rates for the next three years, whether it's, I don't know, um, throwing in your Wi-Fi for free, those types of things, it really makes a difference because everybody is having to fight harder for business these days. Certainly in this climate, it's not as strong as it was 18 months ago. It's just not. There is, you know, the economy is still growing, but it has slowed down. So people are having to fight harder. Um, and so having that level of flexibility and actually coming to the table without us having to say, okay, what can you do? What can you give us that's actually really going to make that difference for our client to want to come back to your location and to really feel the value offering and so that the client feels that they're actually being valued um, by bringing their business to that particular location. It makes a huge difference. I, I totally agree. I think... Um trying to be innovative with the same space is really important as well because we're constantly um, up against stakeholders that want new inventions of events um, that are annual um, but don't want to necessarily move from the space but want it to feel like a different event every year on year. So bringing to the table new and exciting ways that we can do that cost effectively is really good and key, I think. So when you get a brief like that that says, right, you know, this annual conference, we want it to be completely different to last year, we want it to have a new lease of life, we want it to, you know, to, to pop. Would you still consider the same, you know, if you hadn't been given a, a three-year offer or some sort of, you know, incentives to stay with the venue, would you instantly disregard the venue that you'd gone to or would you, would you try to work with them? What would you prefer? We'd, we'd go out to a series of venues. We would go back to the old venue as an option, um, but we'd want to shake it up in some sort of way. Um, whether that be you know, a completely new branding of the venue, um, whether it be that we haven't used all the spaces before or using the spaces in a different way, trying to shake up the format, that's what we would do to try and appease you know, that brief. But um, yeah, we would also go and, and have a look at what else is out there as well. So we've talked about the flexibility of, of costs and, and that, that relationship, but I guess there there's also the flexibility of the actual space itself. Um, yeah. You know, th there's a trend for oh, you know, blank space and, and, and all of this, and, and being able to just build and create something completely different. Is that something that you guys really prefer? You want a space that's really, really flexible, or, or do you like a venue that maybe has character and is is what it is, like say Guildhall, for example? Um, and then you just just move around locations. What, what's your preference? I mean, it completely depends on the brief. Yeah. I mean, there's a very, very big. Um, there's the buzzword in the industry, which is that every agency is experiential these days. Yes. Um, and therefore, we're all trying to design something that is different from the next thing. We have a lot of clients that are doing product launches as well. So we are trying to create experiences which are very, very different. Um, so, you know, the, the, the venue or the location that we, that we would choose that particular brief is very specific to that particular brief. Um, Yes, we would always look at the same venue and put it forward if it's worked well and look at redesigning it. Um, you know, but it, but it needs to be very different from what it felt like the time before. Mm -hmm. So it's how to come up with those creative designs, which I'm sure um, Fisher Productions are you know, specialists at. You know, so it's, um, it's just being as dynamic and as creative as you can be to show that you've got your finger on the pulse. Yeah. 
I think restrictions are key as well. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking about this earlier. Sometimes you know you can you can add a lot to an event through catering, um, but sometimes you find yourself trapped in um, a preferred suppliers list when actually you'd like mm. to maybe go elsewhere with your catering um, and slightly more experiential. So I think the less restrictions on a venue, it's sometimes the better for us personally. Um, again, with production suppliers, I know you were chatting about this yeah, earlier. Yeah, I guess it's really tricky for, for us in a way because our agency is kind of half and half. We're both supplier and also agency. So we're really fortunate that we're accredited at about 50 venues across London which in the vast majority of your historic venues, your kind of UVL type venues, which obviously have a lot of rules and regs because they are historic venues and they're often listed and you know you want to protect the fabric of those spaces. So we're really kind of, well, we're quite lucky, I suppose, that we get the opportunity to have access to those spaces. Understandably, some clients obviously aren't too keen to use off-list because they have their own relationships. Um, so we kind of tow both sides of the line but on the flip side there are venues where we can't work so we have the same issue in the sense that we will have a repeat client or someone we've worked with um, for a number of years and then they want to move venue if we're not accredited there we run the risk of obviously losing that client so I kind of see both sides of it but I think certainly being able to be flexible in those venues again in terms of what you can achieve I think pushing the boundaries within reason I think a lot of the unique venues now are actually diversifying quite a lot so looking at ways that they can use their spaces in a more interesting and dynamic way rather than just doing your kind of bog standard receptions mm. or dinners which is actually really refreshing because it gives us the opportunity as a production agency to do more and be more creative and obviously work with our clients on a more kind of exciting um, platform so mm. and then from a charity perspective I guess you know everyone's very budget conscious but you will be extra extra conscious on, on the cost side so with with those kind of spaces is that is that a good thing for you um so for us i mean a lot of the events that we do are quite traditional um and so for us having often having like an approved supplier works for us because it keeps the costs can keep the costs down and also um in terms of making my life easier it's a lot easier for me if i can just deal with one person at a venue and they can do the catering and they've got, they're the contact for everything um, so that can sometimes make my life quite a lot easier um, yeah so I, I feel like there's there's some I, I don't want it to feel like we're venue bashing you know <laughs> um, because you know that's that's not what it's here it's it's here it's about to discuss kind of best practice so if you could like give an example of where it's really worked well, you've, you've, you've had this partnership or maybe you've got an existing partnership with a venue and it's worked really well and then maybe some of the reasons why it works so well and why you have such a good relationship with that, that venue. So if we start with you. Yeah. Um, we have done, um, we've produced an event now for the last two years and potentially coming up for a third um, at a location called Pine Cliffs in the Algarve um, in Portugal, um, which is a big resort hotel. And we take 800 people there every year in September. Um, it's a weekend away for a management consultancy that take their, um, their, their, their partners, their partners, partners and children um, all away for a weekend. Um, and, you know, it's quite, it's quite complicated in terms of data management, which is going to become obviously even more complicated imminently. Um, and um, we do a lot of activities. We do off-site gala dinners. It's, it's, quite, it's quite tricky. But what we have been able to do 
um, is engage with them on a three-year deal um, on the contracting side where they've not just fixed rates for us um, over a two to three-year period of time, but they've actually given us a 5% discount year on year. So we're going back and we're actually saving money year on year. Um, and it, we've, we've actually entered into a memorandum of understanding with this particular client on a three to four-year deal where we, ju- where we manage their flagship um, events in a rela- in a, in a contractor, on a contractual basis because we're then absolutely working 100% in their best interests. We are doing everything that we can to actually save them money on their bottom line. Um, and we're really showing our value proposition to that particular client that actually we're managing to save them money off their bottom line. When, when prices are inflating, we're actually saving them. So yeah. that's really made a big difference to that particular client. And that's how we hope to retain those relationships with our client base. Um, I suppose... For us, we have lots of really strong relationships with our venues, and I think rather than singling people out, I think working with a number of our key venues where we are accredited actually works really well for us and for our clients on the basis that we we know the venues inside out from a kind of rules and regulations, restrictions side of things. Um, We are able to kind of advise our clients the best way to kind of maximise their budgets within those those spaces. And I think obviously going back to the, the positives of having an accredited list is that we are best placed to advise our clients in terms of what you can what you can do within those usually quite tricky tricky places. Um, I think for us also HRP for a, as a group I think are really great. Um, I think they're changing the way that they work in terms of being attractive to various different markets. They allow us to go in there and kind of really look at different ways of developing kind of. I suppose our clients brief into something that's completely different than what they've done before. They're not scared to kind of push the push the boundaries, which, in extremely historic venues, I'm, I'm sure that's obviously yeah. quite quite rare. So, I think again, any venues where we've got these kind of really strong working relationships, where we can almost be an extension to their team, and given the opportunity to kind of advise. And you know, it's really hard from a production perspective. We're not expecting all those venues to know exactly how best to build a stage or you know what power is needed for certain elements of our kit but that's why we're there to advise and we'd like to be brought in as, as soon as possible to kind of help wherever we can. Mm. Um, I think an example for us is an event uh, called the Formats Festival uh, which is basically an event for around 150 international format buyers um, that takes place once a year at the Hamyard Hotel and that particular relationship has really flourished over the last sort of three years that it's been at that uh, venue, um, purely because we want to reinvent the um, the event year on year, and Hamyard have worked with us really closely to do that, um, and have really you know put forward ideas and taken our event briefs and and given us a real bespoke sort of proposal back. We have looked at alternative venues, um, but we've stayed with Hamyard because cost-effectiveness and we've really developed that relationship so well um, so that's a really great example I think when they've they've actually got involved in that creative process with us so it feels like you know a real collaborative effort and um, so for me an example would be um, banqueting house from the historic royal palaces they, um, from the very beginning they were really transparent about their costs and um, what was possible and what wasn't the capacities um, so yeah from start to finish it was just they were just really good to work with, very open, very on it, yeah. Um, yes, they were really good, and they were really open to all of the ideas that we had um, in terms of 
the entertainment and things. There was nothing that really seemed off limits, so that was good. Yeah. I guess I think the, the, the overall theme or the crux of everything that's been said today is that it's, it's transparency from the beginning, being open and honest, having a really collaborative relationship where you're, you're, you're partnering from the very beginning and then just working with each other to, you know, if there's something you don't know, this is what we don't know, but this is how we can do it. And, and just and having that flexibility both with space and with the pricing and, and, and contracts and stuff like that. So just before we wrap up, is there anything else that's, that's burning inside you that you want to kind of tell the world of venues um, that are listening? Yeah, 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 yeah there is. yes, there is, yes. No, I was just going to uh, mention sustainability because I think um, all of us have mentioned this earlier, but we are doing a massive push, at, I know, at, in our team. And, you know, the more upfront you can be around what the sustainability policies are, um, food wastage in particular, you know, what happens to the food wastage, um, that's really key for us and, and will go in our favour, I think. Um, and then just uh, a key consideration for me when I'm choosing a venue is making sure that it aligns with the charity's beliefs and their core values. So for us, inclusivity is a massive, um, massive deal breaker, really. If the venue is not inclusive and not, not got disabled access or potential for a hearing loop or something, then it would be a... Yeah. That would put us off using you. <laughs> so all of the, the money side of things, but also the morality as well, so balancing the two. Okay, well, thank you very much to our panellists. Uh, please give them a big round of applause. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of the Event Lab podcast. As ever, you can find links to most of the things mentioned in the episode in our show notes below. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topics discussed in this week's News Digest, and you can join in the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag EventLab. For more on Event Lab and to stay up to date with all that's going on, including details of the next event in our Event Lab series, you can go to eventlab.online. If you have any questions or you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can email us at eventlab at hirespace.com. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram for a behind-the-scenes view, as well as all the latest updates by following the handle eventlab underscore HQ. Thanks very much for listening.